following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning. Grab your Bibles. John chapter 16. John 16, verses 16 through 33, the end of the chapter. Jesus says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. But Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I mean by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. And truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So that you also have sorrow now. But I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. And truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. But ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I would no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah! Now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Where does courage come from? In the heat of battle? In the middle of tribulation? Where do we find strength and, and courage? 
Consider the story of Samson. Our Sunday school class surely would know where his strength came from. It came from where? His hair. It's an odd story in the Bible, really, that a man's actual physical strength would come from his hair. And once cut, he loses his strength. And we tend to think often in terms of our strength being inward, something we draw from within ourselves, and we use to get through whatever circumstances we need. Much like Samson's hair, we have a source of our own strength. Perhaps that's our own grit. It's our stick to itiveness. It's our willpower. It's our intellect. It's our family, our community, our source of strength. It might be our physical features. Some of us like to lift heavy things in rooms. For whatever reason, I don't know. But strength comes from a myriad of different places. But here, Jesus draws the disciples' attention to a particular kind of strength needed in the Christian life. And he's not talking about muscles, about willpower. He's not talking about strength of intellect. He's talking about strength of heart. In fact, look in verse 33, the very last verse of the passage we read. I said these things to you, these things being not just our passage, but, but much of what has come before, chapters 13 through 16, what, what we've been calling the farewell discourse, his last bit of teaching before he's arrested. I've said these things to you that in me you have, made, you have peace, for in the world you have tribulation, but take heart. For I have overcome the world. Be encouraged, your translation might say. Stand tall and firm. For I have overcome the world. So, for the Christian who has been charged by Christ to live a now particular kind of life in light of his impending death, in light of the, the gospel, his death, his resurrection, where does the strength and the courage to fight the battle come from? Take heart. I have overcome the world. He does not say, take heart. You are good enough. Or take heart. You'll figure it out. Take heart. You will build up your fortresses and defenses against all the enemies. Take heart. You will learn enough doctrine. Take heart. You will be kind enough to win over. No, take heart. I have overcome the world. So where is the source of Christian strength in the battle? It is Jesus. Particularly, it is Jesus' victory over the world. That's a simple truth. Christ reigns. Amen? It's a simple truth. It's one we teach our children from the very beginning of their lives. And it's one, I think, we now take for granted. That Jesus has overcome the world. It's an easy yes and amen. And we can move on and wonder now about the other hardships and, and trials and problems that we have to face. And what has one to do with the other, we think. But really, friends, there's no more profound truth for the Christian life than what Jesus says, 
take heart, I have overcome the world. Where do you find your strength if not in Jesus? It does have its own simplicity, though. We can teach it to children. We can learn it. It doesn't take much to memorize. Our strength as Christians is drawn from the deep well of Christ's mercy and victory over the grave in his own death and ultimately in his resurrection. So Jesus has been teaching his disciples about what it means to be faithful after he's gone. He's, he's about to be arrested, go to the cross, crucified, died, put in a tomb, he'll rise, hang out for 40 days, and then he goes to the Father. And we don't see him again until Revelation when he returns. What are the Christians to do in his absence? How are they to live? What are they to believe? How should they act? Should they form one community or many communities? Many questions unanswered. But Jesus has already told them that as he goes to the Father, it's to their advantage. Why? Because he sends the Spirit. And so disciples of Jesus now have the Spirit of Christ dwelling within them, teaching them, leading them, guiding them, helping them, bringing to mind all that he has taught so that they may be faithful in the world. But there's more reasons than just the sending of the Holy Spirit that is a comfort to Christ's disciples in his absence. The Spirit is probably the greatest privilege we have as Christians. But there are other great privileges we also have. And in our text here, we see that part of the power and, and, and the triumph of the gospel that we believe as Christians is not only in Jesus' sacrificial death here, but it's in his actual victory over the grave. See, before he's comforted his disciples who were sorrowful over his coming departure, saying, I will send my spirit. But here, he now comforts them with his own work of death and victory over the grave. And so in Jesus, in verse 16, is referring to just that, his death and his resurrection. And the disciples were not quite clear on this, but this side of, of the cross we can see clearly that Jesus was referring to his death and resurrection. He says, in a little while, and you will see me no longer. That is, he's about to be arrested and led to the cross. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Now this could refer to really three things. One, his resurrection. Two, his 40 days of spending time with the disciples after his resurrection. Or three, from his return. And uh, it's tempting to think that maybe it's just all three of those. That's the easy way out. And uh, I wouldn't put it past John to, to mean that. But I think here Jesus is speaking specifically about his resurrection. And I think Paul, the apostle, helps us understand why that's important. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the most important part of the gospel Christians believe. It is actually the source of the true power and triumph over the dead that we have. It's Jesus' victory. It's our seal or our, our receipt of proof that Jesus' death was accepted by the Father, that our sins are atoned for, that we too will share in the new life that he now lives. The resurrection is central to the power of the Christian life. And if we don't have the resurrection, we have very little confidence that the battles we fight will work out for our good. But Jesus here refers, I think, to his death and to his resurrection 
But not far behind his resurrection, of course, is his return at the end of days. But for the disciples, this conversation was a little bit too cryptic still for them to understand. And so they questioned among themselves there in verse 17. And from this we understand they're still really in desperate need of the Holy Spirit. Just look earlier in uh, verse 12, same chapter, verse 12 and 13. Jesus says, there's still much that I want to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. I suspect John, when he writes his gospel, is remembering this moment and the discussion they've had with one another, not understanding Jesus' words. But now, on the other side of Pentecost, having received the Spirit, writing his gospel has a bit of clarity. Now, Jesus was talking about this. <clears throat> so they were missing the point, really. And so Jesus then explains. He explains, as he says, a little bit in figurative of speech. And there will be a time, he says, when those figures of speech will not be necessary, but he'll speak plainly about the Father. But that time is not now. Still, Jesus must be a little cryptic. He must speak a little bit in figures of speech. Or as he would say in the parables, those who have ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus' explanation from what we've read then is really an outline, I would propose, an outline of the many great privileges and, and triumphs of the Christian life. Those who belong to Him after Jesus' departure lives the kind of life that He has sketched out here for His disciples. It's a sketch of the Christian life that can be seen as He addresses the confusion and the anxiety of His disciples. He draws out from their hearts their their thoughts, their struggles, their grief. And he draws them into the open. And he replaces the confusion with comfort and with the anxiety with affection. And that's the, that's the core of the Christian life as he draws out of our heart those struggles that lead us to fear, to disobedience, to running. And he replaces them with comfort from his word, affections, the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth so that we can see in His Word, yes, Christ has overcome the world. So if you're taking notes, the big idea this morning is that our strength in the struggle of this world is drawn from the victorious work of Jesus our Lord. Our strength in the struggle of this world is drawn from the victorious work of Jesus our Lord, and as we've already seen there in verse 33, is the culmination of Jesus' explanation. So we're going to start there first. Notice the exhortation in verse 33, to take heart. That is, be encouraged. Pluck up your strength. Stand tall. Be firm in the truth. What truth? that I have overcome the world. Three questions that we'll ask here and answered by the text. First, what is the basis of our encouragement? Second, what is the source of our encouragement? Third, what is the substance of our encouragement? When Jesus exhorts us to take heart, what is the basis 
of that encouragement? What is the source of that encouragement? And what is the substance of that encouragement? We'll take these each in turn. We've already seen the basis of the encouragement that disciples are to take and receive is Christ himself, and particularly Christ's victory over the world. It is his overcoming of the world. We see, really, a causal relationship. You can take heart because I have overcome the world. Be confident, be encouraged, because of the victory of Christ over the world. This is a defeat, but it's not the kind of defeat that means those who are in the world would not be then drawn into his fold. But it is an open shaming of the world, a triumph of who is stronger and greater that would soon be displayed on the cross and ultimately displayed in his resurrection that speaks to the world, their own condemnation. And that mirror that the church would hold to the world about the death and resurrection of Jesus as the Spirit leads will draw those men and women from the world into the fold of Christ's flock. The basis of our encouragement, brothers and sisters, is the victory of Jesus Christ in overcoming the world. And His victory is not gained through brute force. It's not gained through slying and flaking the enemy. It is gained by going to the cross taking on the penalty for our sin, suffering the wrath of God against unrighteousness, and dying there, the Son of God. It is gained by being laid in a tomb. It's gained by rising again in three days. And the basis of our encouragement is indeed His victory over the world. And this is a victory indeed, but not all will see it this way. Look in verse 20. We see that the world will actually rejoice in the absence of Christ. Chapter 16, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice in his absence. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. The world will rejoice in the death of Christ. It will rejoice and take heart in his crucifixion they will find, the world will find, their encouragement and their strength in the crucifixion of Jesus. And they'll rejoice in His death and in His absence, that He's finally gone. The Jews who have finally gotten rid of Christ will celebrate. But the believing community, we're told, which is anchored in hope and trusting in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, Believing and trusting in the unfolding purposes of God, that sorrow will turn to joy. So the world rejoices for a time, but God's people will rejoice and have the final laugh. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary here on this passage, says something I thought was poignant. He says, There's something, even in the, in the hearts of the most eminent saints, that will never be fully satisfied as long as they are on earth and Christ is in heaven. So while the world may rejoice that Christ is not here, and though we have hope, a future hope, that we will rejoice in the Lord's ultimate return, 
there is still something we must acknowledge as Ryle does, that we live in a now and not yet reality. That we have the fulfillment of the promises of God. We stand justified before God, righteous before the Father because of the work of Jesus. And we can have real, genuine joy here and now. And yet there is still brokenness and sin and destruction all around us. We need not look further than the news to remind ourselves that things are still not quite right. So even in the hearts of the most eminent of saints, there is a dissatisfaction, a longing, a holy discontentment that they are here on earth and Christ is in heaven. But that is even greater hope then for us as believers. For we put our hope and our anchor in Christ who is in heaven, that he has not left us as orphans, he has said before, but has sent his spirit, and that he has returned and will return again to us. In the realized eschatology of John's gospel, that means in the actual working out of the, all the promises of God, breaking in through the gospel that John records, Christians like you and I are learning to navigate the world as believers in that now and not yet reality of the kingdom of God. We're members of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has arrived. It's broken into this world. It was inaugurated in Jesus' death. And resurrection, and we are working with the Spirit to build it and advance it, and soon it will come in its full consummation. And yet we live in the now and the not yet. And so the world rejoices. It rejoices now for two reasons. One, because Christ is not their king, and he does not rule over their hearts. He's gone. Out of sight, out of mind, he has no rule over them, or so they think. They're not accountable to him. He's not there telling them what to do. Christ is not their king. Reality, the world and those who are in it have propped themselves up as their own authority. We are all naturally kings and queens unto ourselves. We have no higher authority we like to appeal to. Sure, at times we may share that glory with another, but at the end of the day, there is no other king but me. No one can rule my heart but me. So the world rejoices that the king is not here. They also rejoice because really as they consider Christ, the gospel that the church commends, they see him as no value, of no benefit to their lives. And so there's no reason to be saddened that he is not here or to trust in him that he will come again because what value does Jesus add to their lives? Rules? Taking most of your Sunday? Let alone the other nights and weekends that you may spend with your family of Christ? It seems like a drag in the Christian life to the outside world. It seems like Paul would call it the stench of death. It's not pleasing to those in the world. It's not pleasing to those who do not love Christ. And so they look at the church and they think, why would I want any share of that? Now, truthfully, because God is indeed ruling in the world and over the hearts of men, He actually often will use what was once a stench of death as a pleasing aroma of life to those He is calling to Himself. But the world and their hard-heartedness will only rejoice in the absence of Christ and finds no love in His presence. 
no desire in his return, no value in his kingdom, and certainly no part in his community. The world rejoices now, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Why? Because Christ has overcome the world. The world that hates him, the world that rejects him, the world that sent him to the cross, the world that rejoices in his absence, that savors in his death, the world that is glad he has gone and plugged his ears to all of his teaching, that turns his nose up to the church and to every teaching of every truth that comes out of the word of the mouth of those preachers and prophets and faithful Christians, that world has been overcome by Christ. It's been overcome, not tomorrow, but on the cross itself. It has been overcome in His resurrection. And so the church can rejoice on the basis of Christ's victory over the world. Why? What is the nature of Christ's victory? Well, His resurrection reminds us, it teaches us, it proves to us that Christ was not stopped even by death. The victory of Jesus means that He has conquered the grave. Paul will tell us that that is our, our last enemy, death. And it's been conquered by Christ. Swallowed up, he says, in victory. Death, where is your sting? And a grave, where is your victory? Well, Christ has swallowed it up in his own death, in his own resurrection. The church rejoices not only because Christ is not stopped by death, but because Christ in his own death and in his resurrection has secured our place with the Father, that which we were very eager and desperate to do, he has secured because he has paid our penalty of sin on the cross for us. So not only has he overcome the world unstopped and undeterred by death, but in so doing he has secured our place, presence, and community with the Father in whom we can rejoice and celebrate and have fellowship. He also sends to us his Spirit. We can rejoice because he has not left us as orphans, but because we have his very presence even now with us. And lastly, the church will and can rejoice even now because we believe fully that He will come again. And the final blow of defeat to the world will be in the last judgment as those who are righteous are given the great reward of their faith. With those who have, like the world, blocked their ears to the truth of the gospel, they will taste and know the judgment they will come to see the true meaning of the victory of Jesus. They will experience it, of course, as the defeated foe. And so the basis of our encouragement, friends, when we face difficulties and trials, when we're confused and anxious, we must look to the victory of Christ. That is always the basis of our encouragement. Suddenly this is not so simple a truth but it's profound. Suddenly it becomes our whole world that Jesus has overcome the grave. Suddenly this is the single most precious truth that we can remind ourselves in in the moment of battle, of sorrow, of grief, of confusion, anxiety. Christ has overcome the world. Well, that's the basis of our encouragement. The second question we asked was what is in the source of our encouragement? Again, look in verse 33 and notice what he says. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. But in the world you have tribulation, but 
Take heart, for I have overcome the world. If the source, or the basis rather, of our encouragement is Christ's victory, his overcoming of the world, the source of our encouragement comes not simply from his victory, but we partake in that victory precisely because we partake in Christ himself. He says there, in me you will have peace. Notice the contrast. In me you have peace, but in the world you have tribulation. The now and the not yet. You have peace here and now while in me, though in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. Recall chapter 15 and Jesus' exhortation as the true vine and those who are in him abiding in him as the branches of that vine. Jake did a, a phenomenal job in, in reminding us that when Christ calls us to abide in him in our word, he means that we would, in a very real sense, create our dwelling place in which we live in fellowship and remain, persevere in Christ. What we're really discussing here is the union that believers share with Christ by the virtue of their faith in Him. There's something miraculous, and I mean that literally, something miraculous that happens when believers are converted. When the world and those in it who hate Christ are suddenly made aware of their sin by the regeneration of their hearts of the Spirit, they see the sinfulness of their own hearts, they see the holiness of God and they come under conviction and righteousness and judgment and they know that unless they repent and turn to Christ that the judgment that awaits them will fall. And so they repent and they turn in faith and they are united to Christ. And this work of being united to Christ is just all over the New Testament. The, the prophets and the apostles are always speaking of our position as Christians in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? That we may share in His victory so that we may have the peace that He promises. To be in Christ means like a branch to the vine, we are connected and draw our source of life from. It means to persevere and to abide with Christ. Ultimate, ultimately, it means to be taken up. Our affections, our allegiances, our desires, <coughs> taken up with Christ. It means that we find our meaning and true identity in the person and work of Jesus. Our identity outside of Christ is one of broken, marred sinfulness. But our identity in Christ <coughs> is one of redeemed sinner, saved by grace. What is the source of our encouragement? It is, friends, our union with Him. And so He says, In Me you have peace, though in the world you have tribulation. But the basis of our encouragement is Christ's victory in the world. And the source of our encouragement is our union with Him. Let's we'll spend the last few minutes on the last question. What is the substance of our encouragement? So when Jesus says to Take heart, for I have overcome the world. What is the substance of that encouragement he exhorts us to? Four answers from the text. The first in verse 22. Substance of our encouragement is permanent joy. Notice what he says. So you have sorrow now. But I will see you again. 
and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. I don't know about you, but when Jesus makes a promise like that, I believe he intends to keep it. No one will take your joy from you. And this isn't just a joy reserved for us on the very last day. This is a joy promised to us now. The substance of our encouragement begins with the reality and the promise of permanent joy for those who look to Christ in faith, who union in union with Him have the true victory over sin and death. And what happens when we receive this gift? It's replacing grief and sorrow. And if we're to walk faithfully, encouraged and steadfast in our faith, we must look to the cross and to the resurrection of Christ to work joy in our hearts so that outwardly we may rejoice. What greater source of joy and strength would we have if not from the cross where our debt has been paid and not in the resurrection where the promises have been made that all who are united to Christ will too walk in the newness of life. Joy in the Christian life replaces grief when both the cross and the resurrection are before us. And so how do we walk in the substance of our encouragement? How do we, how do we walk day by day in permanent joy? Our eyes must be regularly fixed on the cross and resurrection of Jesus. This is not advanced theology. This is Sunday School 101. The answer is Jesus. It is His death and His resurrection. But it is our eyes which are prone to wander. Our hearts which step off the path that must refocus and realign ourselves under the cross. Look to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus so that all the joy that was set before Him would flow from the cross and into you. That joy cannot be taken or stolen. It cannot be lost or abandoned. No one can take your joy from you. That's the first substance of our encouragement. In the next verse we see, secondly, that we have prayerful provision. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name, but ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. So there's a progression from the joy we receive from trusting Christ, that permanent joy, leading us into prayer and the provision of the Father for us in Christ. And this is, this is the unique shifting of the ages now. Christ is recognizing that there's a, new, there's a new era dawning here where no longer is He to be asked and requested in teaching, but He who sends the Spirit will now lead us to pray to the Father in His name. We have a prayerful provision as we walk faithfully. And so asking the Father to provide for us in Jesus' name really reflects the, the new nature or the new manner of the Christian life this side of Pentecost, the new way of knowing and discovering God's purposes as New Covenant Christians. We, we no longer go to Christ, but we go to the Father in the name of Christ. This reflects what Christ has done. It reflects the finished work of Jesus to have paved the way to the Father for us. And now he says, I brought you here. You have access. Ask. And the Father will give whatever it is. 
ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. We have permanent joy in prayerful provision. Third, the substance of our encouragement in Christ is paternal love. Jesus goes on to say there in verse 26, 27, in that day, that is when they are full of knowledge, revelation because of the Spirit, in that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say that, or and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed I came from God. What does he mean here? He says one of the unique moments of the gospel and one of the unique promises of the Christian life, this new covenant era, is that we no longer have to have a mediator, but rather through Christ, who is permanently our mediator, we have direct access to the Father. He says you don't have to ask and I will answer on your behalf, but you can ask the Father directly. Now Christ stands as our mediator. He, he does the mediatorial work. He intercesses for us. The book of Hebrews teaches us all about this. And yet we also have direct access to the Father, to the throne of grace, in the name of Christ. We have real and can experience genuinely the paternal love of the Father for us. It says, the Father himself loves you. You have loved me. And you have believed that I came from God. So because of the love that the saints have for Christ, the Father has a genuine and paternal love for Him. That His love unites us to Christ and therefore unites us to the Father. We have been, as Paul would say, adopted as sons and daughters into the household of God. And we have access to God in Jesus' name. And this access is the special privilege of those whom the Father loves. Come to, the, come to the Father. It's a testament then, friends, to our understanding of God's love for us that we should then pray often. If we have such access to the Father, this is a little hot there, Tato. If we have access to the Father, friends, we should pray. I don't want to be legalistic, I'm not telling you when and how often. I won't check your logs. But brothers, sisters, if we have access to the Father, if we have become the objects of His own affection because we have loved Jesus, should we not then pray? The door is open. Christ has led us to the threshold, and He invites us to come and welcome to the Father. Should we not then pray? Should we not then call on the name of Him who can save us, who can provide for us, Him who has told us that He loves us? We should be praying often. We should be praying specifically. We should pray to, to the Father as our children often come to us and ask for provision. The substance of our encouragement in the Christian life then is that we have such a paternal love that we are led to pray. The last is perfect peace. Again, in verse 33, in me you will have peace. Remember the disciples, their hearts were troubled. They were anxious and upset and distraught. 
And Jesus tells him, do not let your heart be troubled within you. And he says that you and me will have peace. See, troubled hearts will always and should always be stilled by the victory of Christ. It's not a promise that our tribulations will go away, but it is a promise that those who are focused on Christ will experience a kind of joy and peace, as the apostle says, surpasses understanding. Even in the midst of suffering, persecution, trial, peace can be achieved. Not Buddha, Zen, tranquility, like you can ignore the world around you, but real peace, peace with the Father's plan for your life, peace with the enmity of the world that you have set yourself against, peace that you have no condemnation and you have been justified. Troubled hearts are stilled with the victory of Christ because in his overcoming of the world, he put a decisive end to all that which would truly trouble us. How can our hearts be troubled if there is no trouble in sin? How can we have a fear of death if death itself has been defeated? Who is really our adversary if Christ has put to open shame the enemy and those who follow after him? Even the wrath of God has been satisfied. What have we to fear? What did we read from in Romans 8 this morning? What can separate us from the love of God? Can height, nor depth, nor love, nor fear, nor sword? No, none of this. But he says we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have perfect peace, friends, because there is no remaining, lasting, troubling enemy. Only that which we allow ourselves to fall under to. The greatest weapon the devil has over us is our shame. He tries to convict us and lead us. But the very weapon that he has once wielded against his people, fear of death and shame, has been taken out of his hands by the work of Jesus. There is no shame. Those who are in Christ are new creations. It's no longer I who live, Paul says, but Christ who lives in me. We as new creations do not fear sin nor death of the enemy. We have no fear against the God of all righteousness because he is our Father. There is a reverence, but there is no fear. So the result of Jesus' death and resurrection, friends, is peace. The result of our union with Christ is peace, paternal love, permanent joy, and prayerful provision. Let me just ask, this is the outline of the faith. Joy and prayer and love and peace, this is... This is the contour of what it means to walk faithfully in the absence of Christ with the Spirit and in confidence with His work. It's all secured by the victory of Jesus, but is this the outline of your faith? Do you experience real joy when your day has become difficult? Do you rejoice even in your sufferings? Do you Counted all joy when you face trials of various kinds, James will say. Joy, we're told, is an elusive thing. What does it mean to be joyful? John Piper talks about it a lot. It must be important. Jesus says that we should be joyful. Christians aren't supposed to be sad, and yet our experience often is one of joylessness. I, I don't know. There's a reality to that. 
the troubles of this life are not removed, but joy is added to it, that we may endure and abide in Christ through them. So the real joy that Jesus intends for us to possess is not a smiling face in the midst of such difficulties. It is a trusting affection that whatever may come, Christ's victory over the grave will only and always work for our good. That will express itself in lots of different ways. At times, I hope, with a smile. But real joy is experienced because of the truth of the reality of the gospel, Jesus' death and resurrection, and victory over the world. So do you experience that kind of joy? Or are they fleeting moments in your life? I want to commend to you to fight for real joy. Remind yourself of Jesus' death and resurrection. Remind yourself of the promises that you have, the basis and the substance of your faith in Christ leads you to real joy. Are you convinced that prayer will open up the Father's heart to you as you come to him and pray? Or do you relegate prayer to mealtime or to a brief moment after devotion or with your spouse before bed or with your kids before you put them down? Friends, if we are convinced that prayer is a means by which we receive and experience the Father's love, because we have access to him through Christ, let us then pray. Look at your own habit of prayer. How might you improve it? Of course, we all could pray more and read the Bible more and do more. And this isn't a more kind of convincing. This is a, the Spirit has led me to the Father who welcomes me and loves me. He has set his love on me because I have loved Christ, and therefore he says, whatever you ask in in Jesus' name, I will give. How often do you pray? Or what sorts of things do you pray for? Only the big things or also for the small? Do you feel like you bother God when you pray for the minuscule things in your life and you only reserve prayer for the very big things like cancer or a job? Have you moved beyond fear? Fear of man and fear of condemnation Have you moved beyond fear to confidence? Have you taken heart as you navigate the world? Or are you fearful? Friends, the outline of the Christian faith that Jesus here commends to his disciples is one that we must strive to work under, not under our own strength, but drawing directly from the strength that Christ provides. He is the one who has created The victor, he is the one who has secured it. He has risen from the dead, not us. And so we draw our strength from him that we may grow and take courage. If you've never experienced anything like this, no real joy or love or affection of Christ, if you've never really prayed faithfully, truthfully, believingly, if you've never really fully moved beyond fear, you stand now, you think, perhaps under the condemnation of God's righteousness, Ask yourself, do I really possess faith? Am I really a Christian? If joy is foreign to me as a believer of Jesus, if I regularly fail to pray or pray only when I'm in public or at church, if I move in this world not with heart full of confidence and strength in the victory of Jesus, but with fear and trembling that is because of my own 
fear of man? Am I really the kind of person that Jesus is talking about? Brother, sister, if that's you, I want to, I want to encourage you to pray even now. For the invitation Jesus gives his disciples to take heart is open even to you. The beginning of our encouragement begins when we recognize Christ's victory for us over the world. Our confidence is drawn when we know that Christ's death and his resurrection pays the penalty for our sin, that his resurrection means that we have full hope and assurance that he will come again, and that his death was satisfactory to the Father. It means that we can walk in this world in this sorrowful, weary world with real joy. That's what it means to be a Christian. Trusting, believing, walking. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we are grateful for the work of Christ, but we also see your word as a mirror held to us shows us the many places where we are deficient. Even the most eminent of saints, as, as Ryle said, often find themselves discomforted by the fact that you, O Lord, and Christ are in heaven and we are here. But may those momentary lapses of judgment lead us to the reality that we have hope and can have joy. For just as Christ, who with the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, was able to faithfully endure, may we too, with that same joy, be faithful in this world. Help us to live out that joy in such a way that it becomes the aroma of life to those who are being saved. As we go out into the world, which is hostile to you, help us in many ways, large and small, to be instruments of your kingdom. We ask God that you would help us to discern our own thoughts and actions as we examine our lives and to begin to dig into the heart of true joy and into the All sermons of are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. taken a step of saving faith, God work now even in their own hearts to believe on Christ. We're grateful for all your work. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray.